You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Um, as John has shared, we are going to be delving into this issue of church hurt. And for some of you, you've walked in this morning and you haven't known what we're going to talk about and you're like, all right, great, good. But for some of us, we've come in this morning with trepidation and anxiety because you know that for you, your experience has been marked by pain within the church. There's been pain caused by brothers and sisters in Christ and you're here and you're going, what, are we, what, am, what is going to be dredged up? Because for all of us, whether it's something that we have experienced or will experience, there will be pain within the church. There will be broken relationships within the church. This side of heaven, it will be marked by our sinning against each other and being sinned against. And so it is incredibly important for us to know, what do we do with that? How do we handle our broken relationships? How do we handle that pain and that hurt when it comes up? And so I'm going to pray for us that we would experience what Jesus talks about in Luke 4 when he says, I've come to set the captives free and to restore sight to the blind, that we would experience healing, not just today, but it might start the process for us. So I'm going to pray. If you want to bow your heads, um, that would be wonderful. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray that as we open it and dive in and chew on it this morning, that we would experience healing, that your word would not return void. For those of us who have had scarring experiences, that we would start to see some of that scar tissue heal. Father, I pray that we would be the kind of church where it's okay to not be okay, but you're actively restoring us. I pray that we would receive a fresh vision of your grace this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In America, a couple of years back, the Barna Research Group is a um, a research group in America, funnily enough. They did this huge survey of uh, non-churched Christians, that is, Christians who hold orthodox beliefs about God. They believe in the Trinity. They believe, uh, they hold to the Apostles' Creed, all that kind of stuff. They just no longer go to church. And what they found in the survey was that of those 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people that they surveyed, that four out of every 10 no longer attended church, not out of theological difference, because of hurt, because of pain, that had a negative church experience that had led them to no longer desiring to attend church or be part of the church. And I wish that I could tell you that that's shocking to me, but I know that it's not because over the last five years that I've been part of Red Door, I've heard many of your stories and many of the stories that we're not sharing with each other like Jose and Leslie have. I know that church hurt is part of our story as well. Some of us have come to Red Door because of preferences around preaching or um, they like being involved in the youth ministry or the kids ministry or mainly music. Some of us have come here because of our convictions about how to do biblical ministry and how we want to be involved. And some of us have come because of painful experiences in our past churches. And you might be sitting here this morning going, well, why are we talking about this? Why is it important for us to talk about church hurt? Why Why can't we just talk about hurt? Why is it important for us to talk about church hurt? It's important because when the 
the body of Christ is bruised, the cause of Christ is hindered. If we are serious as a church about making all of life all about Jesus, then we must be equally serious about not only hearing but participating in healing our pain from the church. We need to be serious about that because otherwise we'll never take huge steps forward in making all of life all about Jesus like we desire. That's our goal to make all of life all about Jesus. And so we need to dwell on some of these questions, some of these pains. And I'm very aware that as we navigate this ship, there's two uh, dangers on either side. One is that we apply this uh, so lightly that it's like a Band-Aid where open heart surgery is required. That we just talk in generalizations and um, it never actually does any healing. But on the other hand, I'm aware that we can spend so much time in our pain and dwelling on it that we never experience the restorative power of grace. We never move from a hurting to healing. That's what we want. We want to be healed. It is something worth dwelling on, though. So I thought I'd start off by sharing some of my story within the church. I've been part of a church since I was a little tacker, but um, the first church that I really felt I belonged to um, was a great church where I grew up. And uh, it was a church that I became a Christian. It was the first church that I belonged to. It was a church where I was discipled and built up and encouraged. It was a church that I saw my friends come to faith. It was a church that I was encouraged to step into leadership. And it's a church that many of my friends still today attend. Um, It's a church that I still have great affections for. But uh, around 2010... So about eight years ago, I stepped into the role as an intern um, with a friend of mine overseeing the youth ministry without any uh, youth minister. So we were basically running the youth ministry there, and it was, um, it was a good time. Um, we had a, a lot of fun, and it was a particularly fruitful season of ministry. A lot of my rough edges were uh, I don't know, sanded off. Uh, a lot of the games that we played back then have now been banned by the diocese, so parents, you're welcome. Uh, But it was particularly fruitful. Um, We were seeing kids come to Christ. We were seeing um, revival break out, people praying for their friends. We were seeing incredible growth, not only numerically but spiritually. And a number of the teens that we saw um, become Christians in that time are still um, worshipping, serving in that church. So it's not just um, a, a big bang, but there was ongoing fruit from it. And my friend and I were talking with our pastor at the time about um, serving onto going on to next year, and it all seemed positive until about three quarters of the way through the year, uh, I was brought into the office of my pastor with my, my friend and I, and um, they shared with me that they'd replaced us, that they had brought someone into the position um, and that we wouldn't be able to, to do that anymore. We weren't consulted, we weren't talked to, we weren't communicated with. It was just, this is, this is the direction we're heading in. And I understand that. That's their uh, responsibility. They were leading the church. But to be honest with you, it caused a lot of distress and pain for me. Because a place that I'd been growing up in for around about 12 years, which had been a, a nurturing, encouraging environment for me, suddenly became a place where every time I walked through the front door, my anxiety level spiked and I felt distressed. I felt abandoned. 
It led to me um, stepping down from my leadership positions and it was a driver for me um, leaving the church in the end. And I look back at it now and I can see how God worked and how he's brought about that for his glory. The fact is that I'm here because of, of that experience. But it was so destructive for me. I spent six months, the next six months after leaving the church, not attending anywhere. I thought that I had my Lecrae CDs, I had my Hillsong worship, I've got my Matt Chandler, I've got my John Piper, I can just as easy worship God in my room than heading into a place where I could just open myself up to be heard again. And I dare say for many of us that you've asked that same question. Why would I go somewhere different if this has been my experience? Why would I open up those wounds which haven't yet healed if they're just going to be torn open again? And that's what we want to delve into this morning. It is not an easy topic, but it is vital for us. We want to dwell on what does it look like to heal in the church? What does it look like to love the church even when it's difficult? What does it look like to love the church when it hurts? John has said it. I think it's helpful. Our experiences will be incredibly different. Some of us will experience the kind of pain that comes from being uh, left out of the loop or not being communicated well with or not, um, not being followed up. All the way through to, some of us are experiencing the pains from institutional sin, from child abuse. There is a a wide spectrum of hurt within the church that's caused by our brothers and sisters. And so while we want to speak to that, we acknowledge that not everyone's journey or story is the same. Not everyone's in the same place in that healing process. And so I do want to uh, encourage you, especially if you've been involved in in long-term stuff that you've been dealing with, wrestling with, then take what meat you can from today, but spit out the bones, just like a good barbecue rib, right? Chew on the meat, spit out the bones, take what you can and move forward trying to love God as best you can. But I've got four, four things. I think I've held up three fingers. It's not a good start. Um, four things that I think are helpful for us when we're trying to love the church in our pain. Here's the first. We are aided in our love for the church when we fight to see the church as Christ does. Ephesians 1, to 23 says this. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And it says this in 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. One of the strongest analogies for the church throughout all the scriptures is the body. We are the body. Now, some of us are shoulders and knees and feet and heads and a whole bunch of different stuff. Well, none of us is the head because Jesus is the head. That's important for us to get. Not only are we part of the body, but so is Jesus. He's at the top. There's a unity between the head and the body here. I'm going to read this this verse out from Acts 9 where I think we see it in play. Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is, um, following Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. It's interesting that though Saul is persecuting the people of Christ, Jesus responds as if he's persecuting the person of Christ. That Jesus is so unified with his body that the persecution that comes at the feet of his disciples, Jesus says, that's happening to me. And I think one of the things that happens when we've been hurt by people within the church is that we have a tendency to remove the head of Jesus from the body of Christ. We have a tendency to think that how we think about Jesus doesn't impact how we think about the church and we have a tendency to think that how we think about the church doesn't impact how we view Christ as if they can be disconnected. I look at my own life and especially my experiences within the church that have often led me to have a high view of Christ and revel in his majesty and glory and power and then to have an incredibly low view of his people. I just, I just don't see it in the scriptures though. Jesus is so identifies with his people, with his body, that what happens to his body happens to Jesus. It says this in Ephesians 5, one of the most powerful verses in Scripture. What a beautiful promise. Many husbands and wives will know this one. It says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. We are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Our marriages are but a picture into the relationship between Christ and his church. Our husbands and wives are unified, and Jesus says when we see that unity, that is a small window into how Christ views his church. But look at some of the ways that Christ talks about his church. He loves her. He gave himself up for her. He is making her holy. He is cleansing her by the washing of water through the word. He will present her to himself without stain or blemish, but in glorious splendor. Jesus loves his church. He loves his church whilst being completely aware that the church that he loves is broken and has stains, but he is washing her clean. Jesus loves his church. He does not have a high view of himself and a low view of the church. He elevates the church because he knows what it costs to gain her. 
And if you are sitting here fighting to love the church through your experience and through your hurt, then you are doing an incredibly Christ-like thing. Like praise God for your perseverance and Christ-likeness. If you're sitting here trying to love the church, fighting to love the church in your pain. Because pain, pain has an incredibly powerful effect. Pain often shapes our perspectives about different things. Now, you might have experienced this whilst in a a dating relationship where you are uh, dating a a boy or a girl or uh, even married, and um, something happened within that relationship that was painful that shaped your experience of them and suddenly went from the everything, the the be-all and end-all, and now you don't want anything to do with them, and the only difference is the pain that you're experiencing. I I see this on a a day-to-day basis, having uh, been in youth ministry for a long time now, um, I'll, I'll be chatting with a, a young guy, a young buck, and uh, I'll ask them, well, how, how's, how's your week been going? And I'll just say, mm. just okay, because um, I've been in youth ministry for a while now, and I speak fluent in grunting, uh, and I'll ask them, what, what's, what's really going on? And I'll just say, girls, girls are what's going on. Now, I know in that moment that their problem isn't with 50% of Australia, their problem isn't with uh, Danita or Suzanne or Nolene. Their issue isn't with Sarah. Uh, it's with one particular girl over one particular instance in which, for most of them, they're probably at fault as well. But pain and the pain that they're experiencing has shaped their perspective on the issue to say that the, the reason I'm feeling everything is girls. And it's funny But often the same thing happens to us with the church. That we don't see the church in glory and splendor. We see it in all its grime and its garbage because pain has shaped how we view Christ's church. I love this word from Jackie Hill Perry. She's a spoken um, word artist. She says this, For many of us who have had painful experiences within the church, our battle is to not let pain govern our perspectives. Our task is to not become a people who in our heads recognize the church as Christ's bride and full of splendor, but in our hearts regard her as our enemy. The church is not our enemy. Sin is. I don't know about you, but the first time I heard that, that hit me like a weight. For a long time, sometimes I, I viewed the church as my enemy, especially um, in that experience. I was uh, 21, 22, so um, read young and dumb. Uh, and so I didn't have a fully fleshed out view of the church. And so my experience shaped me. I was like, I don't even think you're helping me love Jesus. But when I look at this, Jesus thinks she does because the church is not our enemy. Sin is our enemy. Sin is the real reason we experience broken relationships within the body of Christ. Sin is the reason for our pain. The name that we, the the, the name, like church hurt by its real name is church sin. We are experiencing the consequences of lust and greed and lying and a whole bunch of all other stuff, sexual immorality. That's what we're experiencing the consequences of. And for some of us, we have been part of churches that were more marked by sinfulness than holiness and who had ministers who were more concerned with twisting the word than submitting to the word. 
That's sure, that's, that's for sure. But the church isn't our enemy, sin is. Because when sin is our enemy, we realize that we can do something about it. When the church is our enemy, it's hard to hold institutions right, to account. It's hard to hold Red Door Church to account, but I definitely can do something about the sinfulness of everyone around me. I can confront them when they sin against me. They can confront me when, they, when I sin against them. In fact, that's one of the tasks that we can do to confront our pain, is we can actually confront and kill sin. That's what we're to do with our sin. We're to confront our sinfulness in ourselves and to kill our sin. And when we are experiencing being sinned against, we must confront our brothers and sisters in kindness and aid them and abet them in killing their sin. And you might sit there going, that is a task too high. I don't think I can confront someone or help them kill their sin. But isn't that exactly what Jesus does with us? Hasn't Jesus confronted our sin? Hasn't Jesus killed our sin? Now, he did it by means of dying on a cross for us, but if he has confronted and killed the sin in us, then surely we can confront and help others kill their sin. And we desire to say with Jesus, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. For the person who stands and looks at the person who's hurt them and is able to say, I forgive you, that may be the moment that you look most like your Savior. When you are able to look at someone who has hurt you and say, I forgive you. That's very Christ-like. For if you love those who love you, then what do you gain? Do not even the tax collectors do this? Let us not believe, though, that forgiveness is a one-time event. Forgiveness is not just a, a magic thing in which you say some words and suddenly you experience a, a lifting of the soul. Forgiveness is a conscious decision to not treat someone like their sinfulness deserves, which is exactly how Jesus treats us. Jesus looks upon us not as people who have engaged in a whole variety of different sins, but as someone who's been set free in the Savior. And so our task is to consciously decide to not treat people like their sins deserve if we're trying to forgive them. And it may be that on Friday evening you're praying for this person and asking God's help in forgiving them and you feel like you have forgiven and then on Sunday you come to church and you see them and suddenly every little thing that they've ever done against you has been brought up and then you have a choice to make. Will I love them like I love myself? Will I love them as my neighbor? Will I treat them as their sins deserve or will I forgive them as Christ has forgiven me? I'm not saying this is easy but it is vital to be in a church where forgiveness is not marked by one-time events, but a conscious decision not to treat people like their sins deserve. The third thing I want to say, third point, reject false comparisons about the church. One of the things that as I sit with people, as I talk with them over the last five years, there's been a lot of stories of people who've um, over here out of 
past experiences. And one of the things, the tendencies we have is to romanticize our past experiences of church or to romanticize our historical church. Right? And so we look at either the church in Acts, we look at um, past churches that we went before this church, and we go, it was, just, it was just better then. It was better in the early church. It was more holy. It was more spirit-filled. It was more God-honoring. It was, it was more following Jesus. There wasn't so much sin in the church. The problem is that when you actually look at the Scriptures, it doesn't hold up. Because was, was the church better in uh, 1 Corinthians, when Paul writes to them saying, hey, you should probably hold those men to account who were sleeping with their mothers-in-laws, like the leaders in the church? Was it better in 2 Corinthians, when Paul was having to defend himself against slander for men who were saying that you're powerful in your writings, but you're weak in person, that you're a poor preacher and a deceiver of men? Was it better in Galatians when Paul has to write to them to remind them of the gospel because they've gone off into falsehood and error? They no longer hold on to the gospel? Was it better in Revelation when Jesus, through the Spirit and through John, is writing letters to his church, reminding them of their, their need to, uh, for certain things, like in Revelation 2 in Ephesians, like in Ephesus, when he says, if you don't return to your first love, I'm going to extinguish you as a church? Was it better in the time of the early church fathers, like Athanasius, like Augustine, like Irenaeus, when they constantly were fighting against heresy and error and creating the creeds and the councils that we say today? Was it better in the time of John Calvin and Martin Luther, when they were part of a church that was more known for their greed and lust for power than it was for grace? The truth is, the church wasn't better or worse back then. It was simply different. It had different strengths and different weaknesses. But holding on to the past often bars us from loving the people in the present. Because what happens is that the past in the, 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 the mire of our mind, what it does is it gets removed of all its grit and its grime. And then we come to church on a Sunday and suddenly the people are here and all their messiness, all their brokenness, all their frustrations, all their tears, and suddenly we have a choice to make whether we'll love them too. It's easy to love the past, it's hard to love the present. But we must reject false comparisons. The fourth point, which may seem a little strange, but I think is integral. Leave vengeance to the Lord. For many of us, the reason that we hold on to our pain and our hurt is because we don't believe God has seen it and will not do something with it. We act like small children who have their hands like stuck up a vending machine holding onto a candy bar and the fireman comes and the policeman comes and the parents come and everyone's there and they realize that if the kid just let go, they could get their hand out, but he doesn't want to. And the reason so many of us don't want to let go is that we don't know whether or not someone has seen us. Someone has seen what has happened to us. Someone can, can hear us. Well, friends, God has seen you. He knows what happens to you and he has heard your cries. And so our task is to trust him. It says this in Romans um, chapter 12. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Important. Justice 
and revenge are not the same thing. Justice is God's good design being laid out. Revenge is this bitterness inside of us acting out, reacting out of hurt and out of pain and a desire to see them torn down. We leave vengeance to the side. And it may very well be that for some of us, we need to enact justice against those who have hurt us, especially in uh, the realm of things that are illegal. We need to go to the law. We need to uh, uh, report things and submit things. And we may even need to go to court trusting also in the long arm of the Lord. It's not just the institutions we trust, it's God. But when we trust in God, we can suddenly start to let things go. One of the most powerful um, experiences I had in high school was um, I was 14 years old, don't know what year that is, um, and a friend of mine, she she migrated from Zimbabwe. Migrated is not the right word, fled is the right word. Um, she was fleeing from Robert Mugabe and her, her parents had taken her to Australia. Um, Robert Mugabe is a, is a dictator of sorts in Zimbabwe. He's ruined the country. Um, and I remember my friends being also young and dumb at the time, um, were peppering her with questions about Zimbabwe. And one of the ones that, that really stood out to me was they asked her that if Robert Mugabe stood in front of you and you had a gun, would you, would you kill him? I, I still to this day remember her answer. She said, whatever vengeance I would be able to perform, it will be nothing in comparison to what God will pour out on Robert Mugabe. Her trusting that God sees her pain and her plight enabled her to move on and release her hold on that hurt. It would have been painful for her to leave Zimbabwe and all her friends and all her family and move to a place that's very strange on the other side of the world, but she was able to move on because she was able to trust that God saw every single morsel of sin. And so it is for us. There have been maybe many of us who are holding on to pains and hurts and problems from the past, trust, not, not being able to trust that God has seen them, but the truth is that God has seen every single thing. He sees the beginnings from the end, and He has seen every sin that has ever been performed against you and by you. And the truth is that if we're in Christ, we're free, but God will enact His justice. His wrath will be poured out either onto Christ or onto people. But there will not be any single issue, problem, hurt that God does not see and hold to account. That enables us to move on, step forward, trusting that God has it covered. He will be just. It is His nature. And friends, we have come to the, the end of the sermon, and we're going to pray in a moment, but I'm, I'm really just reminded that this is not an easy thing. I, I'm very aware that for many of us, the pains and the problems, the hurts within the body of Christ have been things that have been enormous marks on our life, and they leave scars. But I do believe our task as Christians, is to love the church when it hurts. I do believe that our task as Red Door Church may very well be to restore the church where it is broken and to rejoice in the bride of Christ and all of her glory. And we will be aided by this when we fight 
Fight is an important word. Fight to see the church as Christ does. When we are able to fight against sin, not have the church as our enemy, but sin. When we leave vengeance for the Lord and reject false comparisons from the church, we will be able to start that healing process. It's not a one-time thing. I'm not expecting any of us to come down the front and be like, great, I'm healed of my church hurt. Excellent. Next week, what are we doing? But I am hoping and praying that that process will start. And it might start like Jose and Leslie sharing a story with someone. It might start by opening up some of that closed-heartedness that you'd had towards people or the church. It might be asking God, God, help me love your church. It's hard. I think it's one of the reasons why Paul and, and the Scriptures tell us so much to be a part of the church is because it's not an easy thing to love God's people sometimes. But I pray and trust that day by day, month by month, year by year, God will be transforming us into a people who are able to say, I love the church even when it hurts. Friends, I'm going to pray for us. And so I encourage you to bow your heads. Father, we thank you for your word and for your church. Though one day it will be in splendor without blemish without grime. Right now, sometimes it feels broken. And many of us have had broken experiences. I pray desperately that we would start to see our scars healed, that we would start to see the things that have held us captive free, that we would start to see that that grip that we have on our pains and our hurts relinquish, trusting that God sees everything. I pray. I pray, Father, that we would be able to say, I love the church. I love Christ's bride. I love the body. It hurts right now, but I love it. I love it. This is not something that we can be accomplished with fancy words, but through a movement of the Spirit. So I pray, Father, that as you send your Spirit to us this morning, that he ministers to us, heals us, and starts the process of being restored. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.